certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The DNA on a silk kimono left behind during the Huntingdale sex attack is 100 billion times more likely to be from Bradley Edwards than anyone else. Welcome back to Claremont in Conversation. This is day 53. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Alison Fan with you. And Tim, yesterday we talked about the dramatic arrest of Edwards. Mm. And well, this was that piece of evidence that led the police to him eventually. Yes, uh, that's right, Nat. So this is the kimono that uh, that we have um, touched on uh, over the journey. And uh, we got to um, the actual testing of it today. So this is the kimono that was left behind at the Huntingdale break-in in 1988, was briefly looked at um, by police and then briefly spent some time at Path West and then went into a box in storage for uh, 28 years or so. Um, and then the cold case detectives who were working on uh, uh, dozens of cold cases at the time in Perth uh, pulled this box and sent this uh, kimono off for more testing at Path West. It wasn't actually DNA tested at all back in 1988, um, but it certainly was in 2016. Um, and the very first stain that they looked at on that kimono, which was on the left sleeve, um, they did the presumptive tests. It came back presumptive for, for semen. They did the, the full test and got a, a major, um, you know, a full profile, um, very strong single male contributor. Um, and as we've described, when that was then run through the DNA database on the 1st of December 2016, um, it came back as a match to what the police at that time were then referring to as uh, case one slash 2009, which was the Claremont case and the Karakata rape case that had been bundled together. And so once they got that hit, um, it was it was on for all money, as the, as the saying goes. And Nat, his young victim, was in court today. I was oh. wondering why she'd turned up. And, of course, that's the um, sexual assault charge that he has confessed to, admitted to, Bradley Robert Edwards, but um, I saw her come in and I thought, oh, that's interesting, so that's why, because she knew that they were going to be leading to the that assault yes. case where she thought it was actually her boyfriend at the time, yes. so she didn't panic, yeah. And so she obviously realised that um, forensics today would be speaking uh, to this kimono, and of course we do know that uh, Bradley Edwards initially denied this crime when these charges were put to him. Yes, he did indeed, Matt. Um, it, it took him basically up until about uh, a month before the tri- this trial began in uh, last year um, for him to um, admit those in open court, which he did, um, which we uh, covered quite extensively um, at the time in the paper, obviously, um, and, ver- and various other uh, media were, were there and, and stunned, really, with that development, um, as was the, the, the victim, um, very relieved, I'm sure, but um, very surprised also. Um, and she's made uh, quite numerous appearances in, in court, including including this week. Um, yeah, and as Ali said, she was she was there today to uh, to hear about the forensic journey that this kimono went on over over nearly three decades. I think that that statistic that you just quoted um, probably prompted him to plead guilty to both those charges, yes. saying that yes, um, 
that was me. Uh, although he's now saying, although he is saying, but I'm not a killer. I mean, I guess what I've found interesting is that the prosecution say that he he feigned absolute you know disbelief about his DNA being on this kimono. Yeah, that's right. That in this that that's in the interview, which we are yet to see. So we haven't uh, seen those denials yet. We will in due course. Um, but so, Mr. Egan, this is Scott Egan, who is the reporting scientist in the case, um, which is the, is the scientist given responsibility, for the overall responsibility for all the results, analysing them, interpreting them, and then reporting them to court. So he's obviously very, very senior in the process. And it was he who was laying out um, the, the various tests done on all the exhibits or began to do that today. Um, it's interesting, Tim, Andrew MacDonald, who was the UK forensic expert we're talking about, um, he is now at Path West. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Uh, talking about forensic journeys, he's been on one as well because he began his career at, um, at FFS, which we know is very central to this case, then at Selmark, which has become more central, and now he's actually moved a- across the world. Um, to replace uh, those that he had to name today as to, being um, <laughs> contaminating to evidence, yeah. Where, where he had to, yeah, had to name some names today, including yeah. Mr Egan, who was one of the... Um, one of the four um, contaminators of the uh, of the evidence, which um, which which his lab um, tested in 2017 and 18. Tim Scott Egan was asked about the lab setup and mm. whether they kept a logbook at all. What was the relevance of that? Yes, yeah, so he described or was asked to describe um, some maps that he'd drawn of the lab, various lab setups and various lab layouts back in '96, and then as the lab got bigger, how the um, the setup changed. And included in that were the, where the phones in the lab were actually situated. Um, it was slightly surprising to me that he said there was actually a phone on one of the DNA extraction benches, which you would think would be super um, uh, airtight and you know uh, clean and, and tidy and not have any sort of contamination outside, outside influence on it. But he did have a phone on it. Um, but what he was asked to describe was um, who had access to those phones. Um, who had access to those labs and in of particular interest um, when work needed to be done from an outside contractor for instance inside the lab how would they get in and what type of record would be kept of who was in there and uh, Mr Egan said in fact that there had been a logbook um, kept uh, every year back going back to 95 and they still existed and he had gone back and looked through them all to see if a, a, a B Edwards had ever signed into Pathwest at any point um, from 95 onwards, and he said there hadn't been. But what he did say was there had been other Telstra employees that had worked in the lab um, over that uh, period of time, but he didn't say who they were. So um, not, Telstra was there, but Mr Edwards wasn't there um, over, o- over those years. Because they have been asking um, that question over and over, um, how many times were the phone serviced? Who came in? Were they Tilstra people, presumably wearing the blue fibre trousers? Um, and, uh, yeah, interesting one. Now, Scott Egan was a witness today, but um, he was also named in court in really what, we, uh, what would be not a great day for the prosecution in terms of the contamination issues. And uh, possibly um, quite embarrassing for... Um, Mr. McDonald, who's now, he's now talking about his colleagues, 
uh, I noticed he was a little loath to come down and face the cameras. He waited for a while and um, uh, that was quite a... And then he waited to, to come down with Scott Egan. But I, I suddenly tweaked, oh, he's naming guys that he's working with um, as contaminating very crucial evidence. So I think there's a bit of that. And that's um, obviously he's replaced Laurie Webb too and still talking about the three that he's working with. So who were, uh, what were the names that you heard today, um, the path workers who had contaminated exhibits? Well, we had Alex Bogdanovich, we had Louise King and Scott Weebin and, of course, Laurie Webb, who is no longer with Path West. Um, and um, I guess those ones, going back to the times, as they said, the testing at the time, um, although it did not confirm a match with Bradley Edwards from the samples he was given. Now, we didn't hear about the two crucial samples, AJM 42 and 40. It said it did not exclude him completely either. So we've got to make that quite clear. Um, although Paul Jovic seemed to be, the defence lawyer seemed very satisfied with what he'd brought out. And um, the other aspect was some of this other DNA that was found. I found it quite unusual that we had somebody who had nothing to do with Path West, nothing to do with this case. His DNA was found on vegetation to do with Jane Rimmer and also the caretaker from the riding school. Um, his DNA happened to be on the vegetation that they recovered in the area where Jane Rimmer was found. Tim? Yeah, I mean, there was... It, it was I call this DNA it from... A, it was a bit of a shopping list, to be honest. Mm. Just, I mean, various... Um, various contributors uh, on various numerous exhibits, it would seem, um, over various time frames. So, as Ali said... Um, Maybe the DNA was flying around the room, because, I mean, <laughs> well, how else would it get on them? We can't suggest that these people were at the scene. Yeah, well, they certainly weren't at the scene, but um, Stephen Darenthorin, for instance, his DNA was taken as a reference sample um, to be sent, um, to be used, because he was the one who found... Um, the knife um, yes. caused James' body, so his DNA would have been taken. So it would have been there would have been a sample there, for instance. Obviously, Laurie Webb, Louise King, um, Scott Egan, and uh, Alex Bogdanovicius, um they were all involved in the in the testing of various exhibits. Oh, so Tim, intimate swabs actually yes. from both yes. the girls. Intimate swabs. Hmm. Yes, and um, so. The, it's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. It's 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 not a good look for Pathwest, who even in '96 with a with a premier lab in the in the state to do this type of work, um, and it's certainly embarrassing to have Laurie Webb's name um, connected with this because he was the senior forensic scientist, um, and Scott Egan, who's now the reporting scientist. Um, it's it, it, it was it was not a good look, um, and it, it's yeah, and it was. It, it was a. It was something I'm sure Ms. Barbara Gallo would uh, rather she didn't not have here. to deal with. As one of the defence lawyers actually said to me just as he walked out of court um, after listening to it, one of our fairly well-known defence lawyers said, "Well, it's about time that place got a shake-up." So that was his quip as he walked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about you know multiple exhibits now, and you Varying know we, DNA. Yes, from, yeah. that are, that have DNA that should not be there, and the question is. How did it get there? Yeah, well, that is the question. Um, we've heard 
numerous times over the course of the cross-examinations about gloves and PPE and, and caps and, and lab coats um, and, uh, you know, who, uh, who was touching what, single-use implements, all that, all that, all those elements thrown into it, um, going back, obviously, nearly well, more than 20 years when the samples were first taken and first um, placed into, into storage. Um, and they've readily admitted, many scientists now have readily admitted that the, the processes back in the 2000, you know, before 2000 were um, rudimentary, to say the least, compared to what they are now. But they've also all said we tried to take as much care as we could, even back in the day, to um, to make sure that we weren't touching anything that we shouldn't be touching with with bare hands or with um, contaminated gloves or whatever. But these results would seem to suggest that uh, those processes um, were liable to break down uh, more than once. I guess some people may say, "All right, well, this is the DNA of Pathwest employees." At the end of the day, we can understand, you know, that there may be some cross-contamination, but does it really, um, you know, is it really such a blow to the prosecution case? Well, when you're talking about maybe the Path West's DNA, but what about the stranger? What about the DNA that came from the um, riding school guy? What about the DNA? It's not anyone to do with Path West or this case. Apparently a victim of another crime. That's mixed. That's all gone into that, the mix-up. So tell us the details of that one. The victim, this unrelated victim, personally I think that is could possibly be the most damaging or the one that Justice Hall um, looks most closely at because that is something that is not, as Ali says, it's, it's not to do with a scientist and it's not to do with even anyone, you know, a secondary sort of, of interest in the case. This is someone completely different from a completely different case that has somehow found its way onto a, 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 an exhibit that was deemed important enough to be in Path West and being tested um, very, very scrupulously. So when you've got a completely outside influence, if you want to put it that way, um, somehow coming to be on, on one of these exhibits, that I would suggest that Justice Hall would say, well, is that... Is, is that how Mr. Edwards' DNA became to be on it? Because it's completely unrelated as far as anyone else was concerned back in 96 and 97. And his DNA was in the lab, uh, albeit a very small sample, but it was certainly still there. So when you look at that, you can see the crossover and the possible similarities. Um, we didn't find out who, who that victim was or what the case was. And we probably don't need to know really um, but what i'm sure justice hall will hope he can find out is if there was an investigation done and if there was um what um what results that pathways came up with about their internal processes so tim just as apart from the uh, this other unknown victim who's got nothing to do with the case the guy who found the knife and handed it into the police, who's now deceased, he was the caretaker of the nearby mm -hmm. riding school. How come his DNA gets muddled up in the mix? Yeah, well, another very good question that I think Justice Hall will probably be asking. Um, so his, his name did come up. Um, I don't want to get too technical without Brendan there, but there was nine alleles of his that mm. matched this mixed sample. Which, if it was... 
at a level of court reporting, that wouldn't be enough. That that wouldn't be reached a high enough threshold to say yes, that's definitely his DNA. But the fact that it was him, the fact that he's connected to the case, uh, would suggest well, it's more likely to be him than you know some other random person with with those um, distinguishing biological features. Um, and again, I'm sure I think we do know actually that they did take. Um, a DNA sample from him as a as a an exclusionary sample, should we, should we put it that way, as a reference sample? But then again, how did that sample get on onto this sample, um, which was an intimate sample as well? It was it was you know it was, it was definitely not something that should have been there um, if he wasn't a a, a contributor. Um, so once again, it's, it would it will just be another thing that Justice Hall will have to ponder when he when he comes to the end of his DNA portion and then the end of the trial. Um, he'll have to weigh it all up. Uh, there has to be some reasonable doubt there. Well, yeah, and that's that exa- that's exactly what Mr. Jovic was trying to create mm. today. And I've said it in the paper. I think he landed some of his uh, some of his heaviest blows today uh, in terms of creating doubt, not so much about. Uh, the, the case in itself, but it's certainly about Path West and what and what they were doing at that time. Did Bradley Edwards have any uh, reaction to this information today? No, he has no reaction to anything. No, not a, not Nothing. a great deal. Mm. Um, but his um, his parents had an up and down day. I can say that they mm. were uh, they seemed to be very chipper at lunchtime. Um, but uh, some of the evidence that came out this afternoon regarding the the, the kimono and other things. Um, that left them looking a little bit, um, a little bit down in the mouth as they left court. But, yes, um, he is an extraordinary defendant because usually you'll see them, even if they're not sort of yelling or whatever, they're they're shaking their heads or looking down or nodding or getting their lawyer's attention. But he shows absolutely nothing. Still, mm. after all this time, and mm. we are at you know day fifty-three. There was a very interesting uh, scenario brought up by Mr. Jovic about. Uh, contamination at the end of his uh, cross-examination today? Well, yes, he ended with a great flourish and he sat down and this was the story about um, talking about what um, the prosecutor said, DNA just doesn't fly across the room. He actually related and got Andrew McDonald to confirm that DNA was found on an exhibit back in this super-duper UK testing lab which had every every cutting-edge technology to make sure it was pure and no contamination, that DNA from an employee that had left the labs two years earlier, up to two years earlier, was found on exhibit. So uh, that caused a great flurry. And he said, yes, we do have every technique in place, but things do happen. And that was one of the most appalling um, episodes, I guess, of cross-contamination where this DNA just didn't fly across the room. It seemed to have crossed up several floors because she had been in the reception room and she apparently had never been in the lab. But here it is, a bit of DNA from someone who had left a cup up to two years earlier, ending up on an exhibit that they were analysing. So well, this is obviously... A, not, it was in a time machine. <laughs> and that, because, because, yeah, she hadn't worked there for at least a year, or possibly up to two years, mm. and, um, and somehow it had flown in. Now, 
Mr. McDonald gave some sort of explanation as possibly her uh, somehow her DNA had got into the air conditioning system. Yeah, and, and that had literally been so it did fly across the room. Yeah. Um, and then and then got into hmm. and then got into the extraction or got into the examination and somehow and um, and had settled on this on this. And, and he said it was highly unusual, which which warranted further investigation. Um, but, but this wasn't to do with macro, was it? Well, no. Look, I, mean, I was just about to say that. To paraphrase Mr. Jovic at another point today, I would say, well, so what? Um, because this is a different lab, a different case, a different country, a different time. Um, and uh, what, how he could... I, I understand the point he's trying to make. Well, look, this, even in the tightest of, of, of and most modern facilities, this can happen. Mm. But he could... But it, it, what it has to do with this case, Mr. Edwards in particular, I, I can't. I, I can't understand. I, I see the point he's trying to make, but when you're t- talking about trying to make specific points about this case, those fingernails, that extract, it it, it, it bears absolutely no weight on that at all. I don't think. Well, but, he's just and, saying that um, your lab is not so fantastic after all because these a mistake has been made and this has happened even though you've got your air flowing in and your special air flowing out and in and out and and all your little protective devices this happened which was an incredible um story that he told about this and the guy said yes it, it did launch an investigation they were appalled by it at the time that a piece of dna from a receptionist turns up on a on an exa- on a sample almost two years later. I'm a bit surprised in a way, though, um, that Carmel Barbagallo didn't object to this in a way because this is an unrelated case. Why is this being brought up? He's showing that it's just not as pure as, as you've said it is, that their yeah. techniques aren't as super-duper 100%. I, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, it was actually Carl Payne, who's one of the more junior co-counsel from Miss Barbagallo. It was, it was her witness, so it was her responsibility to stand up if she wanted and uh, and question the relevance. I think I probably would have. Yeah. Um, not, not, I'm not questioning Miss Payne. She's eminently more um, qualified than me. But uh, I, sitting back now a few hours later, I just struggle with uh, how can that, how can you point to that and then point to Mr. Edwards and say, well, look, look if it, ha- if it can happen there, it can happen there. I mean, it's on a different it's literally on the other side of the planet that this happened. It could not be further away physically, um, geographically, and in time than, than what happened uh, in, in Path West in, in 96 and 97. Okay, before we go, we just have a question here from James in South Australia. Were there media releases from any time after the date we know that WA Police had evidence of Mr Edwards' DNA link, in particular releasing breakthrough information? Can we confirm that police were also surveilling Mr Edwards from this time onwards and, if possible, monitoring his behaviour in reaction to the developments? Do you think we would ever hear about this in the trial? Mm, good question, that. So the, the short answer is is No. So when they first made this um, the major breakthrough in, uh, in, in, in 2016, um, they kept it very, very um, tight-lipped. Um, as we know, they they moved very quickly. So from December the 1st, when they got the first hit, um, Mr. Edwards was arrested and charged on the 22nd and 23rd of December. Going back a little while, 
Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, when uh, the, the, the link was first made in public between Caracatta and Claremont, which was obviously the major breakthrough that was made back in 2008. But that, that, that didn't emerge publicly until 2015 when it was reported locally in the, in, in the very local paper, the Subiaco Post. And I've actually got the press release that police sent out on that day um, after that report. And I'll read it. It says, for operational reasons, the Matro Task Force has not commented on similar media reports about possible links to other crimes. Maintaining the operational integrity of this investigation is paramount if we are to bring the offender to justice. Therefore, operational outcomes must be prioritised over media and public interest. So that just gives you a little flavour of the type of reply you used to get from WA Police when anything was, anything major sort of emerged um, from the from the darkness. Um, you used to get a, a very very firm but polite um, no comment um, on any of these sort of um, uh, links or um, developments in the case. And as we know now, that report about the link between Caracatta and, and Claymore was absolutely spot on. Um, it was it, it had <laughs> it had taken nearly eight, eight years to come to through come to light, but um, but it was right. Um, and uh, and very similar statements were made all the way along um, until obviously um, what we talked about yesterday on the podcast when. Uh, when Carlo Callahan stood up on that, on that, in that very, uh, very tense press conference, and, and said what he said, and, and three years on, um, um, here we are. Right. In, in terms of surveillance of Mr. Edwards, that again only started um, very soon after that that DNA hit in 2016. So, uh, as, as we understand it, uh, the first of December was when the, the link was made. Um, then they went back to the case file, got the um, uh, fingerprint from the the other Huntingdale break-ins made the link to Hollywood and that's when they got the name and that that took a little while so the surveillance of Mr Edwards they weren't sat outside his house and outside his work for weeks and weeks and weeks that surveillance was was short and sharp um, and it got him at the cinema and it it, it it got the sprite bottle out of the bin which was then the uh, presumptive DNA case if you want to call it that which showed yes and then um, the raid occurred very the trg raid that we talked about yesterday occurred very very quickly after that yes they moved very quickly but what we can tell you james is up until that point they absolutely ran a very tight ship (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you both for joining us today uh tomorrow we'll be back with damien cripps that's tim and myself and um, we look forward to your company then when we will wrap up week 12 This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog. Watch the nightly news updates and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.